So we continue in our series on uh, favorite uh, Bible stories. What are the stories of the Bible that our congregation loves the most? We come to the story of Abraham. Now there's something very interesting if you pay attention to um, the order of the scriptures. When we talk about the 19 generations that have preceded Abraham, they get 11 chapters. Adam and Eve, uh, 18 more generations of people are covered in the first 11 chapters of the Bible story. But when you get to the story of Abraham, beginning in Genesis 12, 14 chapters are dedicated to this one person. 14 chapters. 11 chapters to everyone that came before him. Moreover, when we get to Abraham, we really don't get a biography. Because the story about Abraham picks up when he's 75 years old. We don't have any information on Abraham's first 75 years. And that's because the Bible is not so concerned about giving us a comprehensive biography about who Abraham is and what he did. It's focused specifically on Abraham being a man of faith. And so it's a selective biography where they have excised, they've cut out the things that just aren't that important. Things that we might be interested to know. What did Abraham do for the first 75 years? What were the influences that made him who he was? The Bible doesn't deal with those details. It just wants to talk about the life-changing issues of Abraham's encounter with God. And when we talk about Bible... Uh, Bible characters, they all have a distinguishing trait, a distinguishing characteristic. Moses was who? He was the great lawgiver. He was the one that walked up on the mountain, was a friend of God, was handed uh, uh, written documents detailing God's law. He, led, he was a deliverer, led the people out of the land of Egypt. You think of uh, Elijah or Isaiah. And they were great prophets, declaring with great boldness in the midst of adversity what God had instructed them to say. You even think of John the Baptist, a great preacher, a firebrand. People would go out in the boonies to see this man. He was a, he was a song and dance show. He was speaking truth, but he was eccentric. Got to go see this guy. When you get to Abraham... There's nothing really quite flashy about him. He's not a lawgiver. He's not a prophet. He's no wonder worker. The Bible rather calls him the father of faith. Kind of a vanilla description, but important. And when we talk about faith, so often when we talk about faith, we don't talk about it in a way that the Bible talks about faith as a living and active um, relationship with the living God. Instead, we kind of sound like we have faith in faith instead of having faith in God. And so we're going to look at three snapshots, three very important snapshots of Abraham's life this morning. And we're going to learn that just as Abraham learned what it meant to journey with God and what it meant to say, I have faith in God. We need to learn that same lesson. None of, us, none of us have graduated from that school. All of us can learn what it means to have faith and to be faithful. And Abraham is a good 
and gentle instructor. And so as we begin this morning, I pray that you will listen with ears of faith. And that this morning, you will allow God's word to motivate your faithfulness to God. Will you join me in prayer, please? God, we know that faith should define our life. Uh, and we all express faith in different things. Uh, we, have, we have faith in the traffic lights. We have faith in our family. We have faith in furniture that it will hold us up. But Lord, uh, above and beyond all these minor displays of faith, we are to have faith in you. As the author uh, of our life, the one who will judge the living and the dead. And so, Lord, I pray today that for myself, for my family, for my faith family, that we will learn what it means to have faith and that we will practice being faithful even better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll begin in Genesis chapter 12, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 5 of Genesis chapter 12. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and thus they came to the land of Canaan. The very first thing that I think we see in the life of Abraham that is instructive for us is that faith is trust in a personal, providential, and truth-telling God. Did you hear what God told Abram to do? He said, go. He said, you've got all this stuff, your life is comfortable, I have already blessed you, but I'm asking you to leave country, family, father's household, and go. Essentially, he was saying, liquidate your assets and go on a backpacking trip until I tell you to stop. Some of you have had a long life to accumulate stuff. I remember being really proud before I got married, being able to pack all my belongings into a 1983 Honda Accord hatchback and be mobile in about 15 minutes. Couldn't track me down. About 10 months ago, I moved from Louisville, Kentucky to Rock Hill, South Carolina. Goodness gracious. I thought Marcy and I had a lot of stuff but with four kids. Stuff, they're like rabbits. It just multiplies. And it's not just that God told Abram to leave. If it was me as a single person, I could go backpacking. I could sleep on the ground. I can eat beans and rice. I don't know that I want that for my kids. I don't know that I want that for my wife. And God told him, liquidate everything and go on a backpacking trip until I tell you to stop. What did Abram do? Chapter 12, 
verse 4. It says, So Abram went forth. God had given him this huge task. And you know what? I looked in between verse 3 and verse 4, and there are no questions asked. I don't know what translation you have. Um, I think I would have gone, excuse me, sir, can I clarify exactly what you mean? Can I take a U-Haul, please? I really like my new car or my new chariot, you know. Can I, um, can I hold on to that? It just says that God gave the command, and Abram did what? Obeyed immediately. Why would he do that? He trusted this person who was speaking to him. You see, when you trust God, you can do something really crazy. Because you have a personal relationship. You know Him. And you believe that He is providential. You believe that God actually has your best interest in mind. You might not like what God says, but if you know He is seeking your good and not your ill, you can say, you know what, I don't know all the answers, but I'm, I'm comfortable obeying you, not because I'm comfortable with the circumstances, but I know who you are. We have a personal relationship. I trust that you are seeking my good, and I trust that you are telling me the truth. You're not walking me into a trap. And so when we talk about faith, faith means a lot of different things. Does a person who has faith, does he go to church? Sure. Does he... Does he find a way to serve God's people and serve the world around him? Sure. Does he get involved in a Bible study class? Does he have a personal active prayer life? Absolutely. But none of those things are faith in and of themselves. They're part of what it means to have a faithful life. And sometimes when we talk about faith, we talk about all the tangents and not the thing itself, that there is a personal trust in God. And Abram does it. God says, go. And I'm gonna, you're going to go away from all this stuff and you're going to go to all this stuff. And Abram has no contract. He has no, you know, there's no deposition. There's no lawyer to argue the terms of the agreement. The only thing Abram has is God's word. God's word. And it's enough for him. He goes. And I think this leads us to the second point. We're, we're not five verses into to Genesis chapter 12. And we see something else that I think is just really imperative for us. They were imperative for Abram to live a life of faith. They are important for us too. And it's this. Trust in God always requires us to make a decisive break with our past. Trusting God, saying, I I believe what you say and I will do what I am told, requires you to make a decisive trust a decisive break with the past, but it's rewarded by God with His gracious gifts. Did you hear that? God expects you to give something up. What does He do when He asks you to give something up? He gives you something else. Now, the thing that's very interesting about the Abram story, we don't have time to get into this. Sunday school teachers, Bible students, you guys will like this. But evidently, Abram was told to go before previously. We don't have uh, God's instruction like we have in chapter 12, verse 1. But look at verse 31 of the previous chapter, chapter 11. 
Terah was the father of Abram. And verse 31 says this, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to do what? Enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran, and they settled there. So evidently, Abram had gotten a word from the Lord before, and not only did he intend to obey, but he intended to bring his family with him. And for whatever reason, they began this this long journey through the desert, uh, through Mesopotamia, and something happened that they stopped in Haran. We don't know, maybe Terah got sick. We know that he dies, and once he dies, God then comes in chapter 12, verse 1, and says, Abram, get you to Canaan. Take everything you've got and go. Leave your father's household. He was told evidently to go earlier and something happened to stall him out. And we see several things here. There's a chart in your uh, bulletin that I think demonstrates uh, this principle of learning that we always must leave something for, for God. What is it that Abram is told to leave? He's told to leave. He says, Abram, leave your country. Leave your people, leave your your clan, and even more specifically, leave your father's household. This is a call to you. This is not a call to your entire family. It's interesting how God works like that. But did you see the blessings that God had said he would give to Abram? Leave your country and go where? To the land I will show you. Leave your people, but if you're faithful and you obey, I will make you a great nation. I will give you descendants. Leave your father's household, but be content to be a member of my household and to receive the blessings that come from obedience. And here's the thing that is great, is until this point, we have not seen from God's perspective a detailed, systematic plan for God to redeem humanity. If anything, in the first 11 chapters, we see wickedness. We see individuals saved. We see Noah saved. We don't see a plan for God to save people. And here, beginning with the call of Abram, he says, In you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. God is, in this promise to make Abram a great nation, talking about building a nation of his own, of faithful people, and that God will start redeeming. God promises to bless him in his obedience. You'll remember the story. Jesus' disciples, Jesus says something to the effect that you must hate your father and mother, leave all your possessions and follow me. And one of the disciples says, "Uh, God, uh, we've done that. And Abram says, there is no one who gives up things in this world who doesn't inherit much more in the world to come. Is that true? Sometimes when God gives promises, He doesn't exactly tell us what the timeline is. It doesn't mean give to God today and your next bank account statement is going to be awesome. He doesn't promise rewards in this world. And we have to remember we live in a world affected by sin, the flesh, and the devil. We may have hardship. But that doesn't mitigate the promise that when God tells us to sacrifice, He always plans to give us something else. 
There are some of you, because I've heard your testimonies, who have become believers in a family of people who do not believe. That's a difficult way to live. To be a believing spouse who is married to an unbelieving spouse. But you know what? God has given you a family. He's given you people to love and encourage you. Because when he says, be faithful to me, be willing to make sacrifices, he is always willing to provide something else. Point number three, and this is a simple one, but it bears repeating. Trust equals obedience. Have you ever heard people talk about having faith in God, and yet they absolutely and completely live like the devil? Oh, I got faith. Not enough to stop drinking, but I got faith. I got faith. Not enough to go to church, but I got faith. I've got faith. Now, not kind of that crazy faith that actually goes around and tells people about Jesus, but I've got faith. Faith, trust, equals obedience. Just because God gave Abram the promise didn't mean that Abram didn't have to obey. The way Abram inherited the promise that God gave him was through the instrument of his obedience. So we have to be very careful. We are never saved by our obedience. But our obedience demonstrates the truth of our trust. Did you get that? What we do never wins us brownie points or extra credit with God. It demonstrates a life of trust. Because if we trust Him and He tells us to do something, we do what He asks. Now, the thing that's, I think, encouraging about Bible stories is they are very faithful to even tell us the hero's flaws. Abram has just received this tremendous promise to leave his country, his people, his father's household, to go and that God will bless him as he goes. That God promises to protect him. You remember what he said? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. God has promised, Abram, if you will obey, um, you'll have a little bit of a charmed life. I will be with you. And Abram, man, we're so proud of him. Because chapter 12, verse 4, he goes. And almost immediately he forgets that God has promised to protect him. See, the way chapter 12, verse 5 works out, it says Abram left from Haran, and the verse ends up with him moving into Canaan. But as soon as he gets to that land that God has told him to go to, you know what happens? If you continue reading in chapter 12, there's a famine in the land. So Abram shows up at his new house and um, didn't do a home inspection. There's some stuff that's not working out really well for him. There's a famine in the land. So you know what he decides to do? He takes all his people. Excuse me. He takes his wife and all his people and he goes down to Egypt. Did God tell him to go to Egypt? Nope. He didn't. And when he gets there, evidently, um, Sarah was such a looker that Abram was a little concerned that um, his life was going to be in danger. And so he says, hey, let's come up with a deal. Because if they find out I'm your husband, they'll kill me to get you. So let's tell everyone we're brother and sister. Now, besides being gross, um, it's, it's a lie. It's a lie. And so uh, he forgets that the God who told him to do something crazy could raise wheat out of the rocks if he wanted to. 
And instead of inheriting the land right then and there, he got a little testy. All right, what do we need to do? This is where God told us to be, but we can't live here. We got to go. And so he forgets. He doesn't obey. And he travels to Egypt in the midst of the famine, and he lies about his sister wife, and he forgets God's protection. He forgets God's provision. And it reminds us, when we, when we have a biblical definition of faith, faith is trust. But Paul says, if we have um, uh, works without faith, it's not faith. And James says just the opposite. If we have faith without works, it's dead. And so belief and behavior are joined together in the Bible's economy of what saving faith looks like. So friend, as a point of application, I would say to you, if you say that you believe, but you call the shots in what you will and you will not do for God, the Bible would say to you, you do not have saving faith. You have not acknowledged God as the king of your life. You have retained the keys to your household. And God stands there with open hands, giving you the opportunity to turn ownership of your life over to Him. Trust equals obedience. And the truth is, our fourth point, we'll flip to Genesis chapter 15. And we come upon a difficult truth. And it's quite simply this, that faith many times includes serious questions. Faith many times includes serious questions. You see, Abram, chapter 12, he starts out in faith. God says, do something crazy for me. And Abram goes, all right, let's go. Everybody hop on a camel, we're moving. And they get going. And he starts out in faith. But you know what? His pragmatic, rational side starts to kick in. And he starts going, all right, I, I, uh, where's my file with um, God's promises? Because uh, they're not panning out quite so well right now. And he starts out with great faith. But we find out that things aren't quite so clear for Abram on what it means to follow God. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at a point where you, man, you started out great. And then the crush of life has perhaps gotten you to a point where... I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm trusting God, but I don't know. I'm confused. It happened to Abram. Look at verses 1 through 8 of Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. Now, why, why would God say, Do not fear? He was evidently afraid of something. Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. We just sang about that. God is our refuge. He is our shield. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, the last time God spoke to him, what did Abram do? As soon as God got done speaking, he obeyed. What's he do here? Look at verse 2. Abram said, O Lord God, What will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram continued to say, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house 
is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And God took Abram outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And God said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then Abram believed in the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And Abram said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? You ever wish you could talk to God? You can, in prayer. I don't know that you've had this kind of encounter that Abram had. Here's the thing that's very interesting about Abram. When Abram is silent, when he doesn't say a word, he is usually the model of faith. Remember chapter 12? God said, go. 12.5, he went. Doesn't say a word. The challenge is every time Abram opens his mouth, it betrays some measure of doubt. You see it here in chapter 15 clearly. Now here's the thing that's great. Is it bad to be a doubting Christian? Now that might not be what you aim for, but there's a difference between being an agnostic and being a believer who deals with doubts. And we see this very beautifully. Abram had started out in faith, but by chapter 15, he is unclear and he is fearful. Will God's promise ever happen? And we see, I think, two things that are helpful here. There is a difference in your outline between doubting and having honest questions. Abram is not here an agnostic or an atheist. He believes God's promise. That's the problem. He believes it, and yet he sees no fulfillment. And he says, God, how do we... Help me wrap my mind around this to know what you're doing. He's expressing doubt, but he's expressing it honestly. And friends, who did he take his questions to? He did not do what Job did. Who did Job take his problems to? His friends. How much help was that? Zero. All they did was sit around and commiserate with him and talk about how much life stinks. Instead of doing what Job did, Abram took his questions to God. Now, I can't promise you, if you are dealing with doubts this morning, and you go home and you have lunch and you go by your bedside and you kneel down and you say, God, help me understand. I can't promise you by the time the sun goes down that God's going to have you know, the, the UPS man deliver an answer to you. But I can promise you that he's the best person to take your doubts to. And perhaps even in his silence, while you're waiting for the answer to come, that's part of God's answer to you, is to trust and to be patient. And so there is a difference between doubting and having honest questions. But because Abram takes his questions to God, do you see what God does? Did you see what God did in this passage? God, in response, God repeated the promise, he expanded the promise, and he clarified the promise. God said, hey, I've hired a manservant. Um, Is he going to be the one that inherits everything? And God says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to make you a great nation, and it's going to be a biological son. 
And then he expands it and says, listen, when I say make you a great nation, I'm not talking four or 500 people at the family reunion. Go out and look at the stars. And if you can count them, that's the size promise that I'm making to you. And so when we get to uh, chapter 15, verse 6, this is a huge verse. It says, Abram believed in the Lord. God credited it to him as righteousness. This verse is uh, repeated all throughout the Bible when it talks about what it means to have faith. Abram was right with God, not because he obeyed. As a matter of fact, in chapter 15, he's asking lots of questions. But he believed God, and that was the basis of Abraham having a right relationship with God. Again, he has no evidence when God makes these promises. There's nothing that he has besides God's word and God's character. Through the remainder of chapter 15, you have the beginning of God's covenant with Abraham, where God makes these unilateral promises to bless him, and he explains his future plans of what he's going to do with his people. And the way that it boils down to is, is God gives these plans to Abraham because his name has changed at this point. Abraham is told that you're going to get all of this. You're just not going to see it, except with eyes of faith. He says, these great, great um, descendants that you're going to have, they're going to stay here in Egypt, and they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. But you know what? Through those 400 years, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bless you even through the adversity. And you're going to walk out of Egypt delivered by the Lord millionaires. You ever seen a picture of what they think the temple looked like? You want to talk about bling? Jewels, gold, precious metals. Where did they get that from? It said the Egyptians were so eager for the Hebrews to be gone that they opened up their bank accounts and said, here, take what you want. God looted the Egyptians to bless his people. But they had to go through 400 years of slavery to, to get that. Abraham, like all, the faith, like all the faithful of all times, must wait for the future fulfillment of the promises. And friend, it's no different for us. Some of God's most precious promises, no more death, no more sin, no more sickness. You experiencing that yet? That's a promise we have to wait for. What a glorious promise it is. Number five. And this comes down to, I think, one of the most ultimate tests that Abraham faces. One of the most ultimate tests in the Bible. And it's this, when it comes to having faith, trust in God can admit no lesser idols. Trust in God has to be in God, not in God's blessings. In God, trust in God can admit no lesser idols. As we started in faith, so we must continue in faith. You don't get saved by faith, and then grow by works. You grow by faith. You grow by continued trust in God. And we see this most clearly expressed in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. This is the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. What a terrible, terrible story, but one full of so so much blessed truth. Now, at least... um, Abraham had to wait 25 years from when God made the promise until Isaac was born. And at this point, Isaac is a young man, maybe somewhere in his teens or early 20s. So perhaps close to 50 years has passed between God's 
original promise in this story. But yet again, God comes to Abraham and he has words for him. In verses 1 through 3, we see this. Now, it came about after these things that God did what? Does your Bible say tested? God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And Abraham said, here I am. God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there is a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. Wow. What a story. And fortunately for us, the Bible makes something very clear to us that Abraham did not know. Chapter 22, verse 1, said, After these things, God decided to test Abraham. Now, nobody likes pop quizzes. I can guarantee you this is the worst pop quiz in all of the Bible. It's not good. But one of the things I think that helps us to interpret this story is that we have the opportunity to understand everything that is about to unfold is a test. Abraham doesn't know it until after the event is over. Does God require human sacrifice? Nowhere. Nowhere. That's that's what the pagan gods demonstrate. But this is a test. Human sacrifice is not actually what is on God's mind. Actually, human sacrifice is what's on God's mind, but not human sacrifice the way the pagans practice it. God wants sacrifices, but He wants the sacrifice of your heart, not the sacrifice of your body. And so this story unfolds. This test comes as a genuine surprise to us. I mean, after all... um, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 17, has accepted the sign of the covenant. Now, this is not a Bible quiz, but does anyone know what the sign of the covenant is? It's not an easy test. It's circumcision. And it says, when God gave the word, that very day, Abraham took himself, his 13-year-old son Ishmael, and all the men that belonged to him, and they, they were circumcised that day. Now, as a man, I may have a different perspective on this story than some of the gentler folks that are here today. That's a pretty major test. And Abraham obeyed immediately. And he made sure that every man that belonged to him obeyed too. If there's anyone that deserves a little extra credit or maybe a pass on the next test, I would say uh, Abraham, um, he qualifies. He has uh, self mutilated forever. You can't change that once you do that. He has marked himself out forever as a person who is in relationship to God. That's pretty serious. At least if you get a tattoo, I'm told, you can pay lots of money and get it removed or have a a really nice scar in its place to remind you of your youthful indiscretion. This was not something that could be reversed. And so the test seems unfair 
God, Abraham has accepted circumcision. He waited 25 years for you to fulfill your promise. And now you're going to ask him to sacrifice his son? What kind of God is this? And it seems cruel. Did you hear how God made the request to Abraham? He said, take now your son. How many sons did Abraham have? He had two. Remember Ishmael and Hagar? I think at this point, Abraham goes, "Um, which son? What does God say? Your only son. Meaning the son naturally conceived in the context of marriage. Not only that, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and just to erase any unclarity, he says, the name The one that you know is the pivot through which all of my promises will come. To inherit a land, to be a large enough people to inherit the land. I mean, listen, one family doesn't need much territory. But if you're a great nation, you need a lot of land. And the thing about this is it sounds so cruel. Here's the very gift that God has given that he appears to be taking away. But on the other hand... Because God is so specific with his request. We know, because we know that this is a test, that God knows exactly and specifically what it is that he's doing. He understands what he is asking Abraham to do. And so when you see this exactness and this specificity, God always puts his finger on the thing that it needs to be put on. God does not trifle with your life. He he puts it where you need to most demonstrate your trust in God. And oh, parents, isn't it difficult to trust your kids to God? Isn't it difficult? I mean, it's not on the one hand, but there are so many influences out there. We feel like you've got to do this yourself. Trust God? I'd rather do something. Then sit back and trust. And so Isaac is Abraham's link to Christ, to the future deliverer. How could God ask him to give this up? God was testing Abraham's perception of who God was and just how deeply Abraham trusted in him. And so Abraham has this conflict now that he has to reconcile. He has this command to sacrifice his son, but he has this promise to be made into a great nation. And the promise is contingent upon the son that he's told to kill. So what do you do when God gives you a situation like that? Well, here is what is at work. You see, God's initial call, God's initial call in this supreme test are deliberately cast in the same literary mold. What do I mean? Look at this chart. Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham is first called, Abram is first called, what is he told? He said, go, leave your country, leave your uh, clan, leave your family. What's he told in Genesis 22? Go, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him. Again, Genesis 12, Abraham was called to sacrifice. Genesis 22 
he's called to sacrifice in an even more explicit and painful way. What's he told to do? In Genesis 12, he said, go to the land that I will show you. Genesis 22, what's he say? Go to the land of Moriah to the mountain that I will show you. Chapter 12, verse 4, Abraham's response is what? So Abraham went forth. And in Genesis 22, verse 3, God gives the command. And Abram gets up early the very next morning. You see, the test of faith may take on different circumstances, but it's the exact same test. The gravity is greater. The circumstances are different. But the question becomes, do you trust God and will you obey Him? And Abraham knew that that's what is happening here. And when we get to this part of the story, it seems like everything just starts to slow down because it's such a terrible and dramatic story. Chapter 12, verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning and he saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men and he took his son Isaac and he split the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and he went to the place God had told him. Listen, Abraham's life, we we go from snapshot to snapshot and years pass and then this command comes and you get all this verbiage to show that the next morning was a busy morning. Abraham is responding in faith. And a man that has many servants, who's over a hundred years old, is out splitting the wood for the sacrifice of his son by himself. You think he had a man that could do this for him? Someone else? I get the sense that perhaps going to the woodpile was a good opportunity to ponder what in the world God was doing in his life. And so we have no more information. We know that they travel, and it's a three days journey. And it's a fairly silent journey. But it's broken by Abraham's faith-filled statements in verses 4 and 5. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, "'Stay here with the donkey,' And I and the boy will go over there, and we will worship, and we will return to you. What is the command that Abraham has been given? To sacrifice his son. And as the morning fog lifts, and he can see the mountain ahead, it's time for father and son to make the rest of this journey on their own. And I don't think Abraham is intentionally deceiving his servants. Listen, he's the master, they're the servants. He he doesn't have to tell them anything. But what he tells them is full of faith. We will go. We will worship. And we, both of us, will return. And so Abraham and Isaac continue on. And Isaac asks a perceptive question. In chapter 12, verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, And he said, Father, and he said, here I am, my son. And Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac's starting to figure something out here. How does Abraham reply when the ruse is up and Isaac has unwittingly called his bluff? 
Again, we see that Abraham is trusting God through this. In verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. So a lot of activity, chopping wood, saddling donkey, getting men ready for the journey. But the journey itself is not one punctuated by much conversation. What would you be thinking were you the father in this story? And I can tell you what Abraham was thinking. Not a mind reader, but it goes something like this. God is not a liar. God is not a liar. He cannot be mistaken. He's never wrong. God has told me beyond question that I should have a son. And there he is walking up this mountain before me. God has told me Isaac is the one through whom he will fulfill all his promises. Therefore, my son must live or God will be proven to be a liar. Yet God has commanded that I put him to death. From my perspective, this is a contradiction. But there is no contradiction with God. That's the foundation. God has power. God has wisdom. God has majesty and all power. But there's no contradiction in God. But what am I to do with God's command to sacrifice my son? Since there is no contradiction in God, there is only one answer that my mind can fathom. God is going to perform a miracle and raise Isaac from the dead. A resurrection is compatible with the nature of God, but a contradiction is not compatible with the nature of God. How can Abraham say when he has the command that he and the boy will return? How can he say that God himself will provide the lamb? And this is not just conjecture for us to put a spiritual spin on the way Abraham was dealing with this. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, tells us that this is indeed the very thoughts that went through Abraham's mind. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. But Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. What a terrible test. But in spite of the circumstances and the terrible nature of what he was called to do, we see a incredible trust in God. That God is true, that God is not a liar, and that in our obedience, when we don't know the way out, that there is a way that God will be true to himself. Verses 9 through 14 continue. They came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. 
He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place The Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Here's the thing that I think is so amazing about this story. Do you remember? It was just a very minor, minuscule detail where Abraham was told to go to sacrifice his son. It was an undisclosed mountain, but it was a disclosed region. He said, go to the land of Moriah, to the mountain, I will show you. Well, here's the thing that's interesting. It's no mistake that God provided this substitute where he did. It's no mistake that on this mountain where Abraham had built the altar and was prepared to sacrifice his son, that he could look up and see that God had provided a substitute. You see, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, Mount Moriah is where King Solomon built the temple. Mount Moriah, where the temple is located, is the place that on the Passover many thousands of lambs were slain every year on the Day of Atonement. Perhaps at the very place unknowingly to them where Abraham had built this primitive altar to sacrifice his son. God was in the business of of teaching us a lesson that one day there would come a sacrifice that would be effective on the same mountain where Abraham was prepared to sacrifice Isaac. Many thousands of lambs would one day be sacrificed. And you see, the test was this. God wanted Abraham not to sacrifice Isaac on an altar. He wanted Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in his heart. There was no blood intended in the sacrifice, but there was the grief of completely turning one that you love wholly over to God. Because if the sacrifice is made in the heart, then faith was truly and deeply implanted. And if faith was alive, Abraham would begin to know something very dimly that we can see very clearly. Abraham was only asked to sacrifice his son. He was not required to sacrifice his son. God would indeed provide the lamb. And the truth is that when God the Father raised his hand against his son, his only son, whom he loved, there was no one to stop his hand. Jesus' son must Die. And he did die. While Isaac did not, Jesus did. And Jesus died as the substitute for our sins. And he was raised again, bringing life to all who believe in his name. Just as the ram's horns were caught in a thicket of thorns, so the Son of God would be crowned with a crown of thorns. And so as we look at this story today, 
God wants us to demonstrate faith, not to show how spiritual we are. Not to have a resume that says, well, I'm, I'm more spiritual than all these people over here. That's not it. He wants us to have faith because, friends, apart from Jesus, there's no need for us to have faith. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then this building is a waste of real estate. We're wasting our time here this morning if the resurrection is not a reality. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died in your place as a substitute so that you can be in right relationship with God? It all comes down to what we believe about Christ. And this morning, whether you are a person who feels strong in your faith today, or whether you are a person that feels beat up and you don't feel like your faith is strong at all, the solution is the same for both people. It's putting our trust in Christ. Despite what our eyes see, trusting God and His provision in Christ to sustain us through whatever difficulties we face. And so this morning, if you're weak in faith, or if you go, y'all are crazy, you believe that a dead man rose up again. Yes, indeed, we do. And we believe that He has a plan for your life, but it begins with acknowledging your separation from God. And so this morning, if you'd like to come forward during our invitation and you would like to pray, to understand more of what it means to trust in Christ, perhaps for the very first time. Or whether you have trusted in Him, but like Abraham, in the middle of life's story, you're a little confused about the details. Would you come forward today and let us pray for you and encourage you and wrap our arms around you and encourage you to understand what it means, like Abraham, to live a life of living faith. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this wonderful Bible story. God, you are intimately and personally involved in our lives and we're grateful for that. And Lord, on a, on a day like this with a crowd like this, there, there's no mistake why all of us are here. You have um, sovereignly arranged for people to drive by this building and perhaps even to walk into a building that they've never been in before. Lord, if there are those that need to explore what it means to have faith in God, I pray that you will encourage them to come now. If there is one who says, I'm, I'm ready to commit my life to God. Uh, or there's one who says, man, I believe, but goodness, I just, I'm struggling to have faith. I pray that now we can do our business with God and that we can begin the process of living more faithfully for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.